Hi, welcome to the 13th Warehouse, the Friday the 13th TV series edition. I'm Vicki. And I'm Ken. And this is Doug with the episode credits for Friday the 13th, the series, Season 1, Episode 6, 7, and 8. Created by Frank Mancuso Jr. and Larry B. Williams. Episode 6, The Great Montaro. Written by Dunford King. Directed by Richard Friedman. Episode 7, Dr. Jack. Written by Mark Scott Zacree and directed by Richard Friedman. Episode 8, Shadow Boxer, written by Josh Miller. Directed by Timothy Bond, and the original air dates were November 2nd, 9th, and 21st, 1987. Hi everyone, this is Vicki. Kim is off this week due to a new commitment. So since I had all of this ready to go, I'm going to do this episode on my own and give Kim a chance to get her new schedule worked out. So we're back with three episodes of Friday the 13th, the series. Episode 6, The Great Montero, Episode 7, Dr. Jack, and Episode 8, Shadow Boxer. Two of these episodes remind me of warehouse episodes, although the artifacts or slash antiques are different. The Great Montero reminded me of The Sky's the Limit with Monty the Magnificent. The Great Montero has a father and a daughter and a box that kills people to make the magic trick work. The Sky's the Limit is a grandfather and a granddaughter with a medallion that makes people levitate but eventually kills them by sending them up too high. Both the granddaughter in Warehouse and the daughter in Friday the 13th were doing these things to help their magician without the magician knowing. The difference is that I found the Montero episode much darker. Even though the granddaughter was using the medallion in the Warehouse episode, she was not aware that it was killing people. Montero's daughter, on the other hand, probably driven by her father's abusive nature, knew exactly what she was doing. So the episode begins with Jack reading about a magician's mysterious death, and Mickey recognizes the name. As it turns out, he was the purchaser of, now they say the Odin box, the Houdin box, and on the wiki pages it's called the Houdini box. So I'm going to call it the Houdin box. So Jack, who apparently used to be a magician himself, gets an addition in the Magic Star of the Year show so they can keep an eye on and figure out who has purchased the box after the death of the original purchaser, Fatim the Magnificent. It was this box that Fatim used to do the Cabinet of Doom trick, and Robert found it. You'll be next unless you help us and tell us about the box. How does it work? What I do know is that whenever Fatim performed the Cabinet of Doom trick, somebody had to be inside the box. Victims get locked in the Udam box. There's no illusion. There's no slate of hand. It's just cold-blooded murder. Apparently, the way the box works is that it kills whoever they put into it while keeping the magician on stage in the other box, the Cabinet of Doom, alive when the swords come plunging into it. Someone has to die in order for the magician to live. This episode has more twists and turns than we've seen in earlier episodes. There were many more people to suspect. Fatim's assistant, Robert Simpson, who was upset that all of his magic tricks were auctioned off instead of coming to him. Obviously, another suspect is the great Montero, who purchased the Cabinet of Doom, now called the Coffin of Blood, at the auction, and who is also extremely abusive to his assistant slash daughter, Lila. There's also Tommy, a wannabe magician who locks Jack in a closet to take his place in the Pendulum of Death in hopes that it'll be his big break. But he dies when the hidden key used to escape the straitjacket was tampered with. So it is clear that someone is trying to kill Jack, possibly because they're getting close to finding out what's going on. There's also Miranda, another magician that Mickey says has been watching them. But they find her dead and also discover that Miranda was actually Robert. They also find out that Robert was blackmailing Montero about the box. So Mickey befriends Lila after witnessing her father's abuse for a second time and also to try and get some information about the box. Mickey, who trusts Lila, tells her what her father is up to. 
but Lila brings Mickey to the box and locks her in. Lila needed a victim anyway for her father to do his trick in the show. Jack and Ryan find Mickey in the box just in time because Ryan sees sawdust on Lila's back, and because they get Mickey out of the box, Montero dies on stage. So, in my opinion, this episode is all about a child who will do anything to make their god-awful parent happy, And it was established in Lila's evil gloat or villain monologue at the end that her father knew nothing of all the killing she had done to make the trick work. So I wonder why Montero, who bought the Cabinet of Doom, never questioned why there was a second box if he didn't know what his daughter was up to. But if anybody has an answer for that question, please leave a comment on the podcast. You thought my father was the great Montero. I'm the great Montero. All he can do is boss me around. But without me, he's nothing. I'm the one who made him what he is. Not the other way around. He doesn't even know what's going on. Nobody is going to get in my way. Not the team. Not Robert. Not even you. Okay, moving on to the next episode, Dr. Jack. This episode is a little more cut and dry than the last one, and there were not too many twists and turns. This did not remind me of a warehouse episode, but the antique was a scalpel that was believed to have belonged to Jack the Ripper. It guarantees a successful surgery after killing someone else with it. Wait a minute. Here's a note. Legend has it that the aforementioned item may once have been the scalpel of Jack the Ripper. In the summer of... 1888, he sliced the throat of at least five victims in London. No one who ever saw him at work lived to tell of it. We did see a scalpel artifact in Warehouse 13, which was supposed to cure Micah of her cancer, if you remember, because it removes impurities from the body. Pete ended up using it on Paracelsus to remove whatever he ingested to keep him from being bronze. So we have a surgeon who goes out to kill people before he has to perform surgery. The scalpel not only kills his victim, but apparently can cut through an iron fence, allowing him to escape witnesses to his murder of the flower seller. (laughs) The person the scalpel was sold to turns out to be a criminal who owns what looks to be a pawn shop, or maybe it's just a knife shop. He tells Jack, Mickey, and Ryan that he sold the scalpel to Dr. Howlett, who is apparently very famous for curing hopeless cases. Howlett is an arrogant jerk, pretty much, and we know pretty early into the episode that he's behind everything. So there's really not all that many surprises in this one. The only little twist is that while Mickey, Jack, and Ryan are looking for Howlett to get the scalpel, there's another woman, Jean Flippin, following him because she thinks he's killed her daughter, who was a med student who went to meet with him. Jack and Ryan stop her before she shoots him, while Mickey follows him as he is unaware of all this. I have no idea why he's unaware of this woman who just tried to shoot him in the hallway of the hospital. Or maybe he was aware but just didn't care. So the rest is pretty predictable. Ryan follows Howlett. Jack and Mickey figure out that Howlett has to kill to make the scalpel work. Ryan sees him dressing to kill. Ryan falls off the boxes he was standing on, letting Howlett know that he's watching him. Pete and Michael move. Mickey and Jack get to Ryan just in time, but Jack gets dropped from a rope from a second level of the basement, and Gene escapes the psych ward. Howlett is a mass murderer. The question is why. All right, he's gone with the scalpel. I'd say it's a pretty good guess that he's using it not only to operate, but also to kill. Upside and downside of the curse. Exactly. I think the scalpel acts as a sort of rechargeable battery, and if it, if it doesn't kill for a certain period of time, I think it runs down, loses its ability to, to heal. 
Even when it turns out that Hala is the one who has to do the surgery on Jack and is the only one who could save him, we know that he won't kill him during surgery because it would ruin his miracle surgery record. So Hala, a world-famous doctor, goes out on the hunt for a new kill because he now has to do this last-minute surgery on Jack. His disguise is that he wears an overcoat and takes his glasses off. like Superman. He even has a pager that announces his name out on the street. But we never see if he found someone to kill before he begins Jack's surgery. We assume he did, but we never see it. So while Hewlett is scrubbing up for surgery, Ryan is able to steal the scalpel. But he gives it back when he finds out that he's the only one who can save Jack. Mickey and Ryan know they have to get to Jack before Hewlett tries to kill him in post-op, though. And I would have thought he'd wait, because if if Jack dies in post-op, it would still look like he lost a patient. So that didn't really make a lot of sense to me, but okay. Jean comes at him with a gun right before he's ready to kill Jack, and Hallett disarms her. He goes after Mickey and Ryan. Mickey uses his defibrillator paddles on him and knocks him out, and he falls on his scalpel and dies, I assume. So Jean gets away. They just put her on a plane as if she did nothing because really nobody knows that she did anything. I think Mickey and Ryan were the only ones that saw her with the gun in the hallway. And then nobody knows that she tried to kill him when Jack was in the hospital bed. So they're able to just put her on a plane and she goes home. And as Jack says, she got what she wanted. She got revenge for the death of her daughter or justice for the death of her daughter. And that's about the end of this episode. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Space, the final frontier, or is it? Discover the podcast of a couple of moms who love Star Trek and happen to have kids on the autism spectrum. Join Vicki and Elizabeth as we explore strange new worlds, talking about the new Star Trek Discovery series, autism, and whatever else comes to mind. We're Moms Going Boldly, and you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. Hey, Dud Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka. You can listen at EurekaRewatch.com on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So let's move on to episode eight, Shadow Boxer. Uh, the cursed antique is boxing gloves, and the description from Friday the 13th Wiki is a pair of boxing gloves that allow the owner to win in the ring while his animated shadow beats someone else to death. So as I said earlier, two of these episodes reminded me of Warehouse episodes, and this one reminds me of the Warehouse episode Second Chance. The difference is that the artifact in the Warehouse episode was shrapnel, and the boxer couldn't control what was happening because the shrapnel was lodged in his chest. Another difference is that the shrapnel caused the victims to rust to death, whereas in Friday the 13th, the cursed antique is the actual boxing gloves. And once again, this episode is much darker than the warehouse boxing episode, as Tommy, the new owner of the gloves, realizes what they can do and uses them to purposely kill people. I'm also thinking there may have been something about shadows on Warehouse, but I'm not sure if I'm thinking of a different show. I know in Haven there was a shadow killing people, so I might be thinking about that. I meant to look it up before recording, but I forgot. I mean, I do remember an episode named Shadows, but I don't think it had anything to do with actual shadows. So anyway, we meet Tommy. He's an ex-enforcer for a bookie who did time and now cleans up at the gym but wants to get back into the ring. Tommy wants a pair of old boxing gloves that belong to the gym owner, but the owner won't let him have them. 
we have a lot of drama and a whole lot of over-the-top, I'm a horrible person, but why won't anybody give me a second chance overacting by Tommy? Which leads me to a question which actually got answered in this episode, so I'll talk about it at the end. I mean, I know this is supposed to be a campy series, so there is a lot of overacting. But the overacting of the evil people always made me think that it was done purposely to show us that the artifact, the antique, either made a person evil or made the person more evil. And I'll I'll talk about that at the end. So, of course, Tommy decides to steal the gloves and a shadow appears and follows the gym owner around outside, which Tommy seems to be able to see and beats him to death while Tommy throws punches at a punching bag. So back at the antique store... Mickey mentions Lloyd, and this is the first episode we've heard anything about Lloyd since the pilot, although I think Mickey may have mentioned her engagement in a recent episode, I don't remember, but I was wondering if Lloyd was going to be one of those characters that we're supposed to forget about, that just goes away, never to be mentioned again, because the last we heard, he was upset with her leaving him for a few days to settle Uncle Lewis's estate, and now she's living there and running the store, and Lloyd hasn't been mentioned. I always assumed it was going to be like Richie Cunningham's older brother, who nobody remembers there was actually a third child in the Cunningham family on Happy Days. So anyway, I'm guessing that because they not only mention him early on in the episode, but then show his photo in Mickey's room later on, that he'll be making an appearance at some point or will get some resolution about what's going on there. So the widow of the gym owner calls Jack to sell off some of her husband's boxing memorabilia. She specifically calls Jack because some of it was actually purchased from Uncle Lewis. And they find out that one of the purchases was Killer Ken Kelsey's boxing gloves. Apparently, he killed his opponent in a ring accidentally and quit boxing and was never right afterwards. Killer Ken Kelsey's boxing gloves, item 29764, sold to Manning. Killer Ken Kelsey? Yeah, he was a, a welterweight boxing champ in the 40s. 1947, he was defending his title and he knocked his opponent out and he killed him. Hence the nickname. No, he had that nickname long before then. This time he just lived up to it. I was at that fight. That was it was really awful. Kelsey hung up the gloves after that. Some people said he went a little strange. Never threw another punch. So Jack, Ryan, and Mickey go to the gym, and Mickey brings a camera to pose as a reporter so that she can take photos of all the gloves that the boxers are wearing. I don't know why, when she can see the killer insignia with her own eyes, but the camera comes in handy later, so I guess that's the reason. Tommy tries to pick up Mickey, but Sam stops him. So we figure that he's next on Tommy's list, but as it turns out, he has words with another boxer outside, Tony the Terrific. So Tony the Terrific dies while Tommy is fighting someone else in the ring. Fun fact, the actor who plays Tony looks so familiar to me, so I had to look him up. When I looked him up, it turned out that he wasn't the actor I was thinking he was, but oddly enough, I discovered that he played the gym owner, Tully, in the Warehouse 13 boxing episode, Second Chance, that I mentioned earlier. And also a side note, Tommy seems to cough a lot throughout this episode, and I was sure that it was for a reason. And then Ryan finds a medical report in his locker, but he gets interrupted before he could read it. Um, We find out at the end that he had scar tissue around his brain from all the knockouts. So Mickey calls Tommy and says she's reconsidered his invitation. And she does this to get him out of his apartment so Jack and Ryan can search for the gloves. Tommy finds them in his apartment and puts the gloves on to beat up Ryan, which also causes the shadow to appear outside where Mickey is. She flashes the flash on her camera to keep the shadow at bay, but she has to wait for the flash to recharge in between each use. And this made me laugh because I remember waiting for that flash to recharge between each picture back in the day. 
you could almost never get a candid picture because the flash took so long. And while it was recharging, it made a really loud noise. That just made me laugh because I totally forgot about how long that used to take for the flash to uh, recharge. So Ryan is able to get away from Tommy, and they all drive off to get the film developed to see what attacked Mickey. Due to the flash not going off a few times, she was able to capture the shadow on film, and Jack figures out how the gloves work. I think I know how this goes. Look, when Dunn wears those gloves, his shadow splits off and goes after a victim. But what the heck is this shadow? Well, Mickey, we all have a dark side to our personalities, but we keep it under control. In Dunn's case... His dark side is unleashed. The gloves release a shadow that's able to kill anyone who's a threat to Dunn. Or anyone who's trying to steal the gloves. And if there's another fight? In order for him to win, has to be another murder. So back at the gym, Sam overhears Mickey, Ryan, and Jack say that Tommy's responsible for killing Manny and Terrible Tony or Terrific Tony or whatever his name was. So he challenges him to a fight, which gives him the opportunity to send the shadow after Jack, Mickey, and or Ryan. And to make sure that happens, Jack threatens Tommy and he tells him he knows about the gloves. The shadow confronts Mickey and Jack in the parking lot and Mickey holds it off with a big flashlight, which of course runs out of batteries. Here's a tip. Put fresh batteries in your flashlight if you're planning to use it as a defense against a killer shadow. Mickey gets the car and stops it with the headlights. This weakens Tommy in the ring and he loses the fight. Ryan grabs the gloves while Tommy's laying in the middle of the ring and they take them back to the vault. When they get back to the store, they discuss the fact that there's no evidence against Tommy, so he gets away with killing two people. So why they don't realize that since he's out walking free, that he'd come to the store to get the gloves back is beyond me. But he does, and he grabs Mickey and forces Ryan to bring him the gloves. But Ryan puts the gloves on and punches Jack and keeps punching Jack so that the shadow, in turn, is attacking Tommy the same way. So I guess the way Ryan behaved while wearing the gloves kind of answers my question from the very first episode about the antiques making the person evil, even if they didn't start out to be evil. It was never really clear because all the antiques we've seen so far had to do with the people having the antique killing others. So we really never see enough of the person before they had the antique to see what they were really like before they were affected. You know, I mean, like some of the people we have seen already were already questionable, like the little girl with the doll in the first episode and the guy in the Cupid episode. We saw that he was already a stalker and a bit unhinged before he got the statue. And then the doctor in the episode before this one, we don't know what he was like before he bought the scalpel. And again, this Tommy guy, we knew he was a criminal and not a very nice guy, but was he as evil as he became when he got the gloves? But it did seem as if Ryan was totally overcome by the gloves to the point where Mickey had to force him to stop and physically take the glove off of him for him to stop beating Jack. So that was always my question because we've never seen an an antique. We've heard about antiques that didn't kill other people. But like, I think at the beginning we heard about the wedding dress and the woman who bought the wedding dress was hit by a car. So that's an antique killing the person purchasing it. And we haven't seen episodes with those kind of antiques. We've only seen episodes with the antique causing somebody to kill somebody else. So that's what I was wondering. If the person was evil already or if the antique makes them evil. And in some of the cases, it seems like the person was evil or questionable already. But in Ryan's case, he wasn't. 
And, you know, the way he just kept beating on Jack and the way he acted after Mickey took the glove off of him, full of remorse and everything, you have to imagine that these antiques will make a person who's not evil, evil. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back shortly with another episode. And hopefully we'll have Kim back for the next episode. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. This is Doug reminding you to follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash 13th Warehouse, on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse, and on Instagram at Eureka underscore Warehouse. You can listen to The 13th Warehouse on our website, the13thwarehouse.com, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Theme music for The 13th Warehouse, Friday the 13th, the series edition, Suspense Night, Provided by Anton Kornienko. Pixabay user 147-98912. Free for personal or commercial use. See you next time at the warehouse.